Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, one and all. This is Robert Rogers, your host. I am the founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. We are celebrating 12 marvelous years of providing support, information, and resources to individuals who currently have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, along with members of their family. I host individuals who either have Parkinson's symptoms and have figured out ways to reverse those symptoms, as well as healthcare professionals who provide information that also provides ways to reverse their symptoms. My guest today is the amazing Dr. Christian Hagesuth, and he happens to be a 75-year-old retired psychiatrist who has had Parkinson's disease for over five years. Dr. Hagesuth, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. It's a pleasure, Robert. I enjoyed coming to know you over the past weeks and listening to what you've been doing and you're really providing a great service for people all around the world. It's an honor and a privilege. So, Christian, tell us all about yourself. Well, all about myself. Well, I say I was born in the cold winter of 1941 in northern North Dakota. And I was a Norwegian boy. That meant I was a Lutheran. All the food I ate was white. And I learned how to be guilty all the time. I graduated from high school in 59 in Minot, North Dakota, and proceeded to take an undergraduate degree at Northwestern University with a major in chemistry and an eye on med school. I went on to med school and uh, completed uh, my training in the uh, University of Rochester, New York, getting my MD. That was a strange time in the world, though, if you remember, because that was 1967. And... Uh, Early, uh, a year or two before that, I was given the opportunity by the Navy to volunteer for service. And if so, they said they would pay me money for my senior year of med school. And I said, okay, that's good by me. And so when I came out and I completed my internship at Ohio State, I was immediately in the Navy Medical Corps. But they offered me some really interesting things. And of all things, I became a flight surgeon with the United States Marine Corps. And I wound up spending uh, five and a half years of active duty. And remarkable for those times, I never went to Vietnam, and I'm grateful. But those were strange days, and so I pulled out of the Navy, but I didn't know where to go. I started in pediatrics, but I couldn't handle any more running noses. So uh, I actually took three years out in Longview, Washington, not far from where you are, oh. and uh, operated an emergency room. And I had one experience one night when a uh, gunshot wound came in, self-inflicted, and I did all my good emergency medicine interventions and got the airway and got everything done. And when I was finally done and made sure we had a heartbeat and circulation and all the rest, I started checking further, and I found out the bullet had exited the top of his head. And he was, in fact, what we call in the ER heart-lung prep, uh, a good organ donor because there was nothing left of his brain. And I was affected that night, and I finally said, you know, being in the emergency room is not the right time. Be involved in their lives earlier and see whether you can prevent suicides. And with that, I took training in psychiatry in Southern California. 
and moved here to Colorado in 1979 by choice and practiced psychiatry there for, you know, well over 20 years. And early in that time, I was very much interested in all the alternatives to psychoanalysis. And so I was into transactional analysis, gestalt therapy, psychocybernetics, hypnosis, and many things like that, which I found fascinating and interesting. And we're always interested in what the mind-body relationship was. And I had an interesting experience during this time about mind-body, and that was I had studied with a guy named Carl Symington, and he was in uh, Texas. He's a radiation oncologist who had a remarkable patient who came in with an inoperable, unradiatable head and neck tumor. And he told him, go home and visualize with your mind that the tumor's going away. And lo and behold, it did. It disappeared. Well, that caused quite a stir. And I went and took training with Carl for a week and returned to Colorado and volunteered to treat six cancer patients at no fee, helping them do this with the mind-body. And the reality became very stark to me because all of them died on or ahead of schedule. And that caused me to really pause and say, wait a minute, what goes on? And I can get to later what what that told me, but it made me cautious about claims and made me a lot less certain about the mind-body relationship. Uh, That went on pretty much when I came into the... In late 90s and into the 2000s, and unfortunately, I do suffer from a familial, uh, rather severe depressive disease, and circumstances made it such that I left practice, and that was, that was very hard. But uh, I, I then went on and did a number of things. I actually went into big pharma research for a couple of years, and what just bumped me out was the fact that people would come in to volunteer for these medication trials on antidepressants, and yet what they really wanted to do is find any way to get an antidepressant because they couldn't afford $300 to see a psychiatrist. And I just, I, I'm so upset with the money, I don't hate to say this, the money-grubbing antics of some physicians. It just bugs the piss out of me. And uh, just recently here in town, I, I'm counseling lots of people with, not counseling and therapy, but guiding them with Parkinson's disease and somebody who might have Lewy body dementia can't get in to see a uh, neurologist for three and a half months. I, I, just ticks me off. So anyway, getting that out of my system, I was blessed to develop unmistakable signs of Parkinson's five and a half years ago. And uh, I had a, a funny event that every person with Parkinson's can uh, relate to, and that was Doctors, they all say, are the worst patients ever. So I thought, I won't be my doctor. I'm going to go to my internist, and it's my regular exam, and I'm going to, you know, say I'm having some tremors. And he did a thorough exam that lasted all of 10 seconds, and he told me that I, in fact, had essential tremor and not to worry about a thing. Okay, well, very well. So I did that, but after another six months, it was really clear. When I put the streetlight, uh, my left thumb and fingers on my, on my right thumb and hand had a life of their own, and they began to dance for both my wife and I to watch. In the several months that followed, uh, symptoms came 
that my wife saw that I didn't. And among them was the fact that you take, you're, you're looking like an old man. You look like you're carrying a big load on your back. You're always hunched over, straighten up. Well, a husband doesn't want to hear his wife say straighten up, and so I didn't listen much. And uh, the tremor in the hand got a little more severe. And at the time, a couple of years previous, I already had what are signs of Parkinson's. I lost my sense of smell. I had got awful constipation. I had urinary incontinence and uh, stuff like that. So I diagnosed myself as having Parkinson's and went to my neurologist who was a man I practiced medicine with in the past. And when I said, I got Parkinson's disease, he said, who, who, who diagnosed you? I said, I did. And he said, well, let me do that. And he did. And then he sat back with a weird look on his face and said, uh, you've got Parkinson's, very grave tone of voice. And I thought so. And we discussed it briefly. My wife asked lots of questions. And then I said, Mike, what should I do? And interestingly, he was a uh, distance running nut. He'd run 100-mile runs here in the Colorado Rockies. And he said, exercise, exercise, exercise. And he gave me a prescription for a drug called Azelect. I went home that night, sat down at the table, and I think the first and most important thing that happened inside of me is I did not feel like I was engaged in a battle with the disease. I felt like I was being challenged. And I felt that out of that challenge, there's things about life and me for me to learn. And so I did not take it as a death knell or, you know, I'm going to be disabled for everything. And I wrote, sat down at my uh, kitchen table and said, first of all, what am I going to do? Well, I, I tend to jog quite a bit, but I got a bad knee and bad foot, but I'm going to do more of that. I think I need to get stronger, so I'm going to do some weightlifting. And then I said, you know, I bet you yoga should be good. And I've never taken a minute of yoga in my life. And so I signed up for yoga the next day. Well, over the ensuing six months, uh, I took Azelec for two months and found that it was grossly expensive, like $600 a month. And it made my mouth brutally dry. And I thought, I don't want this. And I read up on it and the uh, reports from the research isn't very going. They say there's a statistically significant diminishing in the decline for the population of people who take it. Well, that didn't sound to be too great. Then I tried amantadine for tremors because my tremors were pretty bad. I, when I would be sitting at night, especially watching television, and my right leg and my right hand, they got going pretty ready, pretty much. I might mention, too, before that, that my, my wife, who was my observer, said, why are you angry all the time? Well, it's because my face was like a plaster mask. And the amantadine I didn't like, and then finally I took Cinemat for two days and said, what in the hell are you doing? And at that point, I was getting better. And what I, I had done is I got going with yoga, and I really believe in yoga, because even after my first time there, I walked out and I said, you know what, I feel like I'm living in every cell of my body. And what happened, I didn't call it that at the time, but it was mindfulness. I was becoming aware of where each finger was in space. And when I was first diagnosed, turning over in bed at night, I'd get so tangled in the bed sheets, I didn't, I couldn't, I'd have to turn the light on and try to get figure out what's going on. And 
uh, and in the dark, I wasn't sure where my hand was. And yoga caused me to become mindful of all parts of my body and what I was doing with them. And I realized that it's possible for me to not walk stooped over. And so I very carefully, from that, that time forward, uh, made a point of when I stood up to take my shoulders back and down, get my head square on my shoulders, and take a quick stride with the heel strike first and walk, forcing myself to stand as erect as possible. That became a habit. And that habit, I believe, was a neuroplastic change because the Parkinson's affects the brain, the extrapyramidal system, in a way to make the symptom appear. And if you hold and continue to live in those situations with that much of a hunch and all that rest, the rest, the baby, the slow walking and all, that's going to become the new normal. And I defied the new normal. I said, no, my normal is when I stand up, I stand tall, square shoulders, look ahead, take large steps, walk briskly. And lo and behold, I did. And over the next several months, I found that several of my symptoms diminished. The uh, tremor in my right leg pretty much disappeared. My face became very much more mobile. And my gait was a good, solid, positive, prosperous, moving gait. And I then, in a year later, opened a website called Sweating Out PD. Because I thought that uh, I was beginning to exercise very vigorously. And mostly I did a lot of uh, power walking up steep hills. I live in Colorado, so there are a number of them. And uh, I thought that maybe when I'm doing so well, because I exercise with sufficient intensity, that that, was, that that was part of the healing process. And I remain to believe that that is the case. And so I opened this website just to inspire other people and inform and let that happen. But now the years have passed, and uh, last spring marked over five years. And my neurologist is beginning to retire. And I said, I sat down and I said, Mike, why am I doing so well? He said, you're doing better than any patient I've ever seen. And I said, why? He said, I think it's the exercise. And I said, I want to make sure I really have PD. Uh, would you do a DAT scan? And a DAT scan is a radioisotope study of the brain. While it doesn't diagnose Parkinson's, it does show findings that are consistent with people who have the disease. And if you have a tremoring disease and you have this particular appearance of to that scan, that's, that's pretty conclusive that you've got Parkinson's. Well, my dad scan was positive. Then, um, because I became familiar with John Pepper, who was on your show recently, and had talked to him, I realized that it was possible that the public at large or the medical profession at large may well want to say, you really don't have PD. Well, I volunteered to go into a clinical study at the University of Colorado Medical School, and it was a study for signs of cognitive changes with Parkinson's. And I got accepted to enroll, and I went down and went through a day of incredible amount of testing, psychological testing, physical testing, uh, brain scans, functional MRIs, and at the end of the day, he said, well, you for sure you've got Parkinson's, and 
you're not qualified to enter the study because you don't have any cognitive changes, you're fine. And I thought that's pretty good news for being rejected from the study. And again, I asked him the question. This is a uh, Dr. Bensie Kluger, who's well-known countrywide. I said, why am I doing so well? And he said, casually, I think it must be the exercise. Hmm. I went home and I began to really think to myself about this. And I realized that before the exercise, what really happened was in my mind. In my mind, I chose to see the disease differently. And I believe that is what ensured the future success of the exercise. And just one more wonderful thing happened, and that is uh, I have a good friend who's a retired neuroscience professor here at Colorado State, and he and I have been talking. We've been reading Norman Deutsch's books together and talking neuroplasticity, and my friend Howard said, you know, I think, you've, I think you're better because you've changed your brain pattern, your, your brain maps. And I said, I think so. And then lo and behold, I found that Dr. Deutsch, who lives in Toronto and goes all around the world, was going to be in Denver the following week. It was at a conference that I know nothing about, but I signed up for the conference. And uh, he was the keynote speaker. And so for the first half of the keynote, I listened interestingly. And then there was going to be a 15 to 20 minute break. And I walked up to him and he was at the lectern and a couple of people were standing around, and I walked up and I said, you know, Dr. Deutsch, I'm glad to meet you. My name is Christian Hagaseth. I'm a retired doctor. I've had Parkinson's for five and a half years, and I don't take medicine. He dropped his pencil. And he looked at me and he said, go back and walk up here again. And I did. And he said, I don't see any sign of it. And I said, I'm not taking medications. With that, he turned his attention to me and started talking and interviewing me more. And he said, you know, will you allow me to demonstrate you to the audience here after the break? And I said, sure. And so after the break, you know, he introduced me and they could see how I looked. And I uh, put myself through about five or six yoga poses and did some jumping jacks and smiled. And they gave me applause. And Dr. Deutsch then uh, interviewed me for an hour and recorded the interview. And so I asked him, I said, what's going on with me? And he said, I really believe that you represent the achievement of positive neuroplasticity, and that accounts for why you're doing so well. And he then said, you're actually doing better than anybody I've ever seen with Parkinson's for five and a half years. What happened then? I came home and I sat down and I began to think, at 75 and being retired, I'm not going to be in a position to start clinical trials. But I think what I've done can work. And so I then, and it's only been about three months now, set up what I call uh, integrating the body-mind. And it goes back actually to Buddhism where you say the body and the mind are actually very much entwined. They're not separate like Descartes said. And that it's reciprocal. So what I do with my body will change my mind. So every time I get up and start walking and I walk erect with a big arm swing and large steps and smile and keep my head on top of my shoulders, I am actually changing the brain maps in my brain. So that is becoming normal. And so I recognized that if I was going to train somebody to try to achieve what I have, the first step had to occur in their mind the relationship to the illness had to change. 
And I do not believe in battling an illness because that makes it a war. And I'm not at war with my disease. And even though I'm Norwegian and can't do it, I'm dancing with it. We do Norwegian drugs because I come from North Dakota and, you know, we're a great Arctic bears and Keeler country. So anyway, uh, I say I'm dancing with Parkinson's. It's teaching me things and it has taught me a lot. And so in, in the training, I try to convey that to people and then prescribe uh, types of exercise and especially yoga. And then finally, Norman Deutsch has made it clear that imagination properly focused and done can actually evoke changes in the brain as well. And that they've seen this where you get two guys that are comparable golf players and one of them gets up to the practice tee and hits 10 balls and the other guy gets up to the practice tee doesn't hit a ball, just imagines hitting it perfectly. Subsequently, they find the guy that imagined it hit it better. And so imagination and visualization are powerful. So in my training, once I hope that I get the person to see life differently, I create two recordings for them. One, which they would listen to earlier in the day, is hypnotic. I respect hypnosis because I believe you get to the what I call it, a deep brain, and that's where the good stuff happens. And it's a matter of getting very deeply in and finding images and things that will work for that individual. Then in the evening, I do, I wanted to get mindfulness meditation in there, but having taken the mindfulness-based stress relief reduction from uh, John Kabat-Zinn's group, I found there was too much to teach there. So I, I try to introduce people to mindfulness, but I turn them on for contemplation, so they have a 20-minute period in the evening, and they have various visions or phrases that they visualize, and they do those for six weeks. It's not enough to go to a good lecture with a stern speaker. It doesn't change you. To change the brain, you've got to work out it's a garden. You've got to tend to it every day for six weeks. And at the end of that time, I believe that there should be positive changes experienced. Did I use any of that on the line? I'm Rob. Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. You are listening to my interview today with Dr. Christian Hagaseth, who has had Parkinson's now for over five years and is doing indeed beautifully. So, Chris, you're a psychiatrist. You've uh, prescribed medications in the emergency room as a physician, in the Navy as a What medications do you currently take? Well, I have had, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my family is riddled with uh, depressions that can become psychotic. And I have been the beneficiary of good antidepressant medication now for, gosh, about 25 years. really has helped a lot. So I'm on a couple of antidepressant medications, and they have basically saved my life. Uh, my mother was a frequent attender at mental hospitals. My father threatened suicide for the last 20 years of his life. My brother and my sister have both been uh, involuntarily detained because of severe depression. And we have seven grandchildren among us, and I can't tell you how many, but the girl, because of family. But most of them have had serious bouts of depression. So that's, that's the uh, load that I have to bear. And so um, let's see. 
The other medication I take is Coumadin. Because I had uh, open heart surgery, I had a heart valve that I had to replace back in 2009. And so I take Coumadin. So basically I'm on some antidepressants and Coumadin and one baby aspirin today. You've talked quite a bit about yoga. So what is so special about yoga? Boy, you know, I don't know if I can put it all into words because I don't think I understand it myself yet. But there's such a sense of owning. And as I say, I'm alive in every cell of my body. I walk out and I look at my hand and I'm aware that I can feel all the tissue in my fingers all the way out to the finger, out to the skin. And uh, I move so much more easily. And my range of motion is remarkable. Uh, And I can do... The only complex yoga poses I, are balancing poses because I have not yet managed to find a way to overcome my problem with balance. But otherwise, I, I mean, my movements are fluid and young, and uh, yoga also affects the mind. And I, I believe it's a uniting of the mind-body, or I like to say the body-mind, because in the West, we all want to think the mind is more important than the body, but I, I, I reverse the order, body-mind. And it is an experience of the body-mind completely. And uh, it's kind of mystical. But gosh, it sure works for me. And uh, a few years ago, I became the director of our local support program. And we've got, oh, we got about 35 people with Parkinson's in our program right now. And of that, we have 20 in yoga regularly. And... Uh, uh, last summer, I asked about five or six of them who'd taken yoga for two years. Compared to two years ago, how do you feel? And they, all of them said, "You know what? I guess I'm doing better." And I asked one woman, "How do you know you're doing better?" I mean, she'd had she's had Parkinson's 16 years, and she said, "Well, when I walked by my neighbor's house, they came out on the porch and said, what have you been doing, Barbara? You're looking so much better.' So when what neighbors watching her walk by says that she's doing better, she's doing better." Um. In yoga, uh, I've had somebody talk to me and ask me the question, what's the best yoga? And I don't know that I can distinguish among the schools of yoga. What's most important in yoga is the relationship with the instructor. You need to have an instructor that seems to care about you, that wants to be more educated about Parkinson's if they're not, and that accommodates you and supports you. It's a very, very nurturing relationship. And if you don't have that, I don't think the person should even bother trying. I don't recommend the uh, hot power yoga, the Bikram, which is hot. I think heating the body at that time is putting an unnecessary stress on it, and I think it, uh, it gets more like an aerobics workout rather than a spiritual body-mind workout. Would Tai Chi do as well as yoga? You know, I've considered that, and I've read about it, and in my opinion, I just don't happen to have a good Tai Chi studio in my town. And so um, other than reading what I've read and talking to a few people that I have, I think that with the proper setting and the proper instructor, that Tai Chi would do just the same. You mentioned that the yoga teacher is important. How does somebody go about selecting a yoga teacher? Mm -hmm. Well, I say, number one, 
go to a lot of different teachers. Go to a lot of different classes because you'll immediately find out. Uh, you know, you come to you come to a class and the teacher doesn't speak out loudly enough that you can quite hear exactly what's being said, or they go along so fast that you're not quite keeping up, and uh, maybe they don't make eye contact. Uh, maybe they come over and kind of adjust your body uninvited. The first thing is, is I want somebody that I like. And I want to feel that this person looks at me like a human being and somebody they care about. And then we talk, and then I go to more classes. And if I'm feeling really great when I leave, I know this is the person for me. And so my teacher I've had now for uh, four years, and all I can say is she's fantastic, and she runs all of our Parkinson yoga groups, and uh, people are doing well. How necessary is a health club? You know, I think you don't have to have one. I just think that health clubs provide so many nice things for us to do this. Uh, But surely you could do the program I talk about and uh, go to a yoga studio or class and not be in a club. But when people visit my website, they'll see what I also do, which is called High Intensity Interval Training, H-I-I-T. And it was created by a Japanese gentleman by the name of Tabata. And once or twice a week, I challenge my body to go beyond what's called DO max. I challenge myself for my heart to get that it can't beat any harder. Not for a long duration of time. And uh, I can do part of it outside by running, but in the club, in the winter, it's a wonderful place for me to do that. And so uh, I like the club. I like the fact that uh, I have camaraderie and if I'm feeling particularly stiff, I can jump into the jacuzzi afterwards. And so I kind of, I just kind of feel an affinity for it, but I don't know that I would say to people it's essential. It's a nice thing to have. Chris, could you again say the name of your website and spell it very slowly? Okay. Sweatingoutpd.com. And I'll spell it as best I can because I don't remember military numbers. S-W-E-A-T-I-N-G, which is sweating. And then out, O-U-T, P-D, Parkinson's disease, dot com. Sweatingoutpd.com. Most people have some sense of what power walking is. But tell us what you mean when you talk about mindful power walking. Yeah. Um, I, I grade walking. Let's go from the most strenuous down. The most strenuous walking is uh, competitive race walking. And you see these things in competitions in the Olympics, and you look at it and these people, their their bodies are moving every which way, and they're and they're covering a lot of miles pretty damn fast. And that specifically uh, is for people who are athletic competitors. 
the next click below that are people who want to use uh, walking as a good aerobic exercise. They want to get their pulse rate up. And uh, a speed for that would be like three and a half miles an hour. And it's you know, 17 minutes a mile or so. And people there, there's a big arm swing, there's a long stride, the chest is out, and they, they, they are moving as vigorously as forward as they can without jogging. Mindful power walking goes one step lower because I talked about my mindfulness thoughts earlier with respect to my everyday walking. And mindful power walking means I'm going to walk at a very brisk pace in the form of a person doing power walking, but I'm going to be mindful of exactly how my body's moving. And here are corrections I make. I start going and I notice suddenly that I'm beginning to lean over. I'll come to a stop, correct my posture, and start out again. There's another problem that people with Parkinson's have. It's called festination, which is when you're taking steps, suddenly your body wants to take steps faster and faster and faster. The minute I feel that starting, I stop, take a breath, straighten up, and restart. Um, uh, if I'm aware that I'm walking and my arms aren't swinging quite right, I like to get the image of the guards at Buckingham Palace changing, and I put that into my imagination, that I'm swinging my arms like I'm one of those guards at Buckingham. So it's an exaggerated arm swing, but it is programming my mind to say this is the correct way that we walk and we're laying that, we're reinforcing the brain maps for walking that way. Slower than that is a matter of cardiovascular fitness, uh, hips, knees, uh, ankles, arthritis, and all the rest. For anybody who can do it, I say walking is good, and I want to see them walk with the greatest speed possible. But there are compromises that come in people's lives. And at that point, I say, you should talk to a physical therapist plus a professional trainer. Find the best thing you can do to exercise, to use your whole body. And uh, that will have to be tailored to you, depending, you know, if you've got, if you've got a bad knee that really hurts and you've had a knee replacement and it still doesn't work, it's going to be hard for you to do that much power walking. That's when you try other things like the, maybe you're working a cycle of uh, machines in a health club. Swimming, interestingly, is a good exercise, but it's great for cardiovascular, but the fact is is that swimming, you know, we're not fish. We're, we're land-walking mammals, and so we need gravity to be opposing us, and that's why swimming may not help Parkinson as much other than for its cardiovascular benefits. Bicycling is a very good exercise. It's been well documented. The problem I have with bicycling is, is that you get into accidents with automobiles, and they always win. And also, if you live where you have much winter, there's a long season when you can't do it. Though I, don't know, I do know people who can get on an elliptical, a treadmill, or a bicycle in a club and do it. More power to them. I am so bored to death when I do that. I, I just can't stand it. And then, of course, they've got TV screens all across the side. And 
that's another torture too. Daytime TV leaves a lot to be desired. So um, that kind of talks about it. And the power walking, me, I think, needs to be regular and needs to have some real distance to it. If I have an issue with people my age, as I think we give up too quickly about what we can and cannot do because I'm 75. And uh, I think that walking like that for at least an hour, five days a week, is, in my opinion, ideal. I think it's the most important thing you can do for remapping your brain. You referred a little earlier to H-I-I-T or Tabata, T-A-B-A-T-A. Could you elaborate a bit for people who don't know much about what that is? Okay. I'll talk to you about the two types of Tabata I do. But here are the words, high-intensity interval training. My running one that I do, I will only do once a week and only when the weather is right and the footing is right. But I will find myself a nice place and I will, I will pace out about 50 yards. And then I start, and in the, running from the starting point to the marker of 50 yards, I run as fast as my legs can carry me. And when I reach that point, turnaround point, I go back to a, the fastest walking I can do, but still keep my breath. And when I get back to the starting point, I turn right around right away, and I run as fast as I can. And I do that that cycle for 10 to 12 times. So that will last maybe 10 or 15 minutes. It's not long. But it has a strange metabolic effect on the body, and that is when you go into what we call the anaerobic place in your body where you're, you're starving it for oxygen, the cells in the body take a lot longer to recover and so sometimes a recovery from something like that could take a day and a half. In fact, people who are athletes doing Tabata limit themselves to about three times a week. So that is what a Tabata is. The other Tabata I do is in the health club where I have a uh, trainer help me. And I have a series of uh, eight stations at different machines. And I do the exercise as intensely as I can and move from one to the next to the next to the next. I'll go through all seven or so, eight of them. And then I, I do allow myself um, about three to four minutes of walking to cool down. But then I repeat the cycle four times. This gives me a good Tabata workout, but it also helps me work on the strength of the other parts of my body. Because at that time, I'm doing lots of things with my shoulders, my arms, my hands, and stuff like that. That's Tabata. Tell us more about your training. Timing? Your training program. Oh, my training program. Okay. All right. A person who goes into the training, uh, the first week is a uh, period of learning in which uh, I've prepared written materials and uh, lots of uh, videos that you can get via YouTube and then some audios and videos of my own. 
And the purpose in that week is to, again, re-educate and reorient the person toward the illness, convince them that, in fact, it is true that their mind can affect their body and that they can, in fact, get better. And there's so much that's already planted in our minds if we have Parkinson's because my first neurologist said, and he was very grave and serious when he made the diagnosis, he said, now you understand this is progressive and this is degenerative. It's, it's all downhill and the best you can do is kind of slow it. And I reject that now. I totally reject it. And that is the mindset I need to establish in people who want to do the training. Then um, I also teach them about a number of subjects. One is neuroplasticity. The fact that the brain can change itself under the right conditions and make changes that are positive. And you need to know neuroplasticity isn't all good because neuroplasticity is no judge. It just takes what it's given it. So your brain, when you start having these odd gates, rewires itself to saying these odd gates are normal. You can't allow it. I also do some teaching around what I've set up as an understanding of the mind, what I call deep mind versus surface mind. And it's uh, kind of detailed, but what I hope to do is get people to understand some of the deeper structures in the, in the brain that have a great effect on how they live their lives. I don't expect anybody to become a neuroanatomist or a neurophysiologist, but I want them to understand that there are, there's a center called the amygdala. It's, it's fear. It can take over the body in an instant if the body feels threatened. And vis-a-vis Parkinson's, the amygdala might be working all the time saying, what's going to happen next? What's going to go wrong? So I teach about brain structures and brain function. Then uh, mindfulness meditation I've only come to mindfulness meditation over the last two years, and I realized that uh, it is a enormous benefit. And so it wasn't part of my original practice, but it is now. And so what I do, I kind of teach people uh, about what it is, refer them to uh, videos of John Kabat-Zinn, who is the master of what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And then finally, I introduce what a hypnotic recording sounds like. I always have to deal with some prejudice there because a lot of, I've had people say, I'm not going to do anything around hypnosis. Well, that's because they're not enlightened. I mean, people go into trance spontaneously all the time. Just drive on a boring highway and see what happens. But uh, get into the trance is where we get the surface mind to be quiet. And the deep mind does not respond to words. And now I'll give you an example of what I do, how, how this works, because it, it's pretty creative. I have a 72-year-old man who is a tall, big, was pretty athletic guy who had a total ankle replacement because of severe arthritis and then also got Parkinson's disease. And uh, when I met him, he was walking with walking poles, and he was extremely stiff. And when I interviewed him, I said, you know, in, before you had Parkinson's, what did you like to do? And he said, I was a skier. 
well, of course, in Colorado, we do no skiing. And I said, well, how good were you? And he said, I was good. I said, double black diamonds. He said, all the time, no problem. And I said, so is your dream to ski again? He said, yes. So I looked at this stiff man who wants to play in the snow, and my creative imagery for him came to this. If you've ever seen videos of otters playing in the snow, you see an animal that swivels in every part of its body and experiences utter delight in it. I found three YouTube videos of that, and then in his hypnosis, I take him down deep, and then I said, you are an otter. And picture how the otter's body is moving, how it's so slippery and lithe and flexible. That's you. Now, he is uh, two-thirds away through the training. And he has, at this time, uh, given up his poles. He walks more fluidly. He smiles more spontaneously. And he's not going to do any training for the next three weeks because he and his wife decided to go to Europe on a trip. I think that's really a good sign of progress. And you bring up something right now about my training that I need to mention to you in complete disclosure and honesty, and that is I'm just getting started with doing this. I've put it together now so it's good enough that I know I'm providing value to people. But it's changing as I'm changing. And so uh, if people want to know the track record of my first 100 patients, it doesn't exist because right now um, I've worked formally with about 16 people. Uh, and I'd say I had one person drop out completely early on, didn't want to do it. I've got two people who have not had outcomes that we had hoped. Other people are either in process or doing much better. And I'm going to acquire a lot more experience that way, but I want to let, to let people know that uh, I'm not a highly experienced practitioner other than the fact that I'm an athlete and I've done hypnosis and I understand the mind and it's worked for me. So uh, that, that the, the final thing is in the last six weeks, people li- listen to a hypnotic tape in the morning, a um, uh, meditation, contemplation, one in the afternoon, and continue some regular exercise. And then I like to talk to people every week because uh, it's easy to lose interest if you don't have somebody to do it with. But fortunately, as you well know, it's possible to talk all around the world I just get on Skype and I can talk to somebody uh, in, uh, well, I've been talking to, well, of course, uh, John Pepper in South Africa and then also a couple I'm working with in Australia. So the Internet and Skype makes it possible to do this anywhere that people can hear me. Does that kind of cover what my, what my plan, my uh, treatment sounds like? A beautiful summary. I'm Robert Rogers, your host, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Christian Hagaseth. So, Chris, how can people order your training program? One way. Uh, that is, they need to go to the Internet. And my website, sweatingoutpd.com, I have contact information. All they do is fill it out and contact me. And then I personally talk to everybody on the phone. And before they order the program, I talk to them to find out what their needs are, what their situation is. Um, I had two people here two weeks ago that uh, the woman had a problem with vertigo, which would come on and last intense and very disabling for anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes. 
but it only happened five times in the last year. And otherwise, she's doing well. I did not believe my program would help her, and so we agreed that she would not do it because it wasn't a matter of neuroplasticity. There's something going on in her vestibular system that I don't see that my program would help. So I want to talk to them first to see whether or not uh, their symptom complex and what their goals are. And then also, um, there are people who have, you know, some real financial concerns. I want to hold my fee pretty steady at 320, but uh, if somebody has real financial problems, I'm never going to send anybody away because they can't pay. I never did it in the 20, 30 years I practiced medicine. I never refused to see a patient because they couldn't pay, and I maintain that position now. So if anybody is lacking in money but they want to do this, I will work with them. And then finally, if somebody does this and puts some heart and soul into it and they go the full treatment, the whole session of eight, seven weeks, and they say, you know, I'm not one bit better, if they want to, I'll refund their money. Chris Hagasus, you have made the following statement. Your neurologist can't make your PD better. Only you can. What do you mean by that statement? Uh, yeah, I love that statement. I, and I, it's my own statement. Uh, neurologists, you know, in my training in psychiatry, I'm actually board certified by the board of Amer- American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Neurologists have to take psychiatry in their residency, and psychiatrists have to take neurology. So I know a little bit more about neurology than the average doc. And I understand what the neurologists do, and the neurologists currently are going to, they're there, number one, to diagnose. And diagnosis of Parkinson's for some people is very simple, and diagnosis takes a long time. Talk to any 10 people with Parkinson's, you're going to find three or four that were not a long time before they got diagnosed. And then there are some similar conditions that look like Parkinson's but are more severe. And you need a neurologist to be able to make those diagnoses. So a neurologist diagnosis and then will uh, initiate treatment, which for Parkinson's is almost 100% pharmacological. And so they will start prescribing medications and then medications to handle the side effects of medications and then monitor how that works. They will refer you to physical therapists when there are specific needs and uh, they need to make the referral, but then you can see a physical therapist. Right now I'm getting swallowing therapy, and so I see an occupational therapist for that. And so a neurologist does those things, but all of the things that a neurologist does is treating symptoms that are inevitably moving downhill. And so the only person on earth that can make your Parkinson's better is you, because it's your body mind, only you. And so uh, that's why I say your neurologist doesn't make you better. They diagnose and treat your disease with interventions that are appropriate. And non-neurologists, other alternative, uh, you know, medical providers, they do roughly the same thing, although the claims for, you know, different ones are claiming improvement, and they may well be true. I'm just not educated enough. But the neurologist does not ultimately help your symptoms to get better. They manage them with meds, but you still continue moving down. In my case, I have no doubt that I have several symptoms which have completely disappeared. And let me throw one other little 
piece into this. There's we didn't talk about the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's. To date, I have not found that my regimen is helping my non-motor symptoms, with one exception, and that is intense exercise helps combat constipation. But I have not found that it helps my other non-motor symptoms. I'm still working on that. Some of the listeners of the program today have just been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. What would you want to say to them right now? Those are the people that I am so desirable of meeting right away. First thing out of my mouth is, get rid of these words and phrases. Degenerative, progressive. Reject those words. And the phrase, I can't dot, 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 complete the sentence. Reject that. Because too many people give up before they really can't. Then, truly study and understand that you can make a difference in your disease and that it's up to you. And uh, read, uh, get into uh, support programs, although I have to say support programs have a wide range of how well they work. There is a, a Facebook place, it's a chat room basically for people with Parkinson's. And I was there for about three weeks. I couldn't take it. All people did was complain about how bad they were, pray for me, oh, I'm having such an awful day and stuff. And I thought, if you're immersing yourself with people who have that attitude toward their disease, you are going to get worse. So find support, but it's got to be upbeat, positive. And I'm not saying Pollyanna, but there's a reality. The reality is we can do better. And so find support to do that. Read the people you need to read. If you're, if you're really interested in understanding neuroplasticity, I say read Dr. Norman Deutsch. He's got two books. They're pretty scholarly, but they're great. And then there's a woman by the name of Joel Marchant from UK who wrote a book this year called Cure. And it talks about all the ways the mind and the body interact. And I think that education really goes a long ways. And so, and then of course I will you know, say I would love to have them get into my training. The sooner the better. You know, get in and, and get a hold of this disease as early as you can. I feel a little bit constrained by somebody who's had the disease for 10, 12 years. I don't have anybody who I've worked with who has already had DBS. And uh, I don't know where I'd stand with that. I would certainly see somebody if they wanted me to, but the advanced disease, I just don't have enough experience or understanding that I can make predictions. But the early early on, the early people, great. I just said the word early and that brought one more important thought to mind and that is early onset. These really, I, in fact, I just had a conversation with a woman this morning. She said, yeah, so you, you, you take our walks four to five nights a week. You meditate for 45 minutes in the morning. You do yoga every day. You go to classes four times a week. She said, I am 33 years old. I've got three kids. I have a career. I've got a husband. And how am I ever going to get that done? And all I can say is, my God, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. That sounds harder than hell. But as I've considered, I thought, 
okay, they may not be able to undertake the intense exercise or frequency that I'm suggesting, but maybe they can get a yoga practice together that they can do at home. They can walk with mindful power walking when they're taking the kids and doing whatever they need to do. And I still think that the brain imagery and stuff could help. But the early onset people are a unique subset with very different problems because some of them are trying to keep it a secret that they have Parkinson's because they're afraid it will jeopardize their career. But the people that are recently diagnosed, uh, that, that's why I think the greatest, in, greatest improvement can be made. Dr. Christian Hegeseth, on behalf of the thousands of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to be a guest on the show today. Well, you're welcome, Robert. And again, as I said at the beginning, you are the one to be thanked. You are providing the service. You are making this, this information available to people in a way that I could not. And for that, I'm grateful to you for on behalf of all people with Parkinson's who listen to you. It's a good service you're doing. It's an honor and a privilege, I must say. And that's what's happening on the shores of, you guessed it, the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the simple fact you have listened to this radio show interview with Dr. Christian Hegeseth today, that you indeed are on the road to recovery. Our next guest is Dr. John Coleman, a naturopath doctor from Australia, who has reversed his Parkinson's symptoms since the middle 1995s. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. Good day. <laughs>